Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'll give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Oh, Father, the giver of life and the author of this word, the one who knows us inside and out, the one who loves us and because you do, have given us your word. Would you open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we might see you? That this would be more than information. This would be more than proposition. That it would be your revelation of yourself to your people for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us or haven't, I will let you know we are in the middle of a series uh, in these Beatitudes. Uh, we've come to actually the middle of that series, literally the middle uh, today of these Beatitudes. We've seen for the last few weeks that Jesus has gathered his disciples to himself and, and before he moves further into his public ministry, he wants them to know what it's all about. He wants them to know, he wants us to know that you're blessed, that there's blessing that flows, there's, there's change that occurs, and there's, there's a pattern that he is eager for us to take up and to step into. We're poor in spirit, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that there's nothing in our hands that we bring. That was the first beatitude. The second, blessed are those who mourn. That is a spirit-produced attitude toward the brokenness of our own hearts and the waywardness of our, the direction of our life that, that is marked by guilt and shame. But that is the very path to forgiveness in life. Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, a tempered strength, tempered by the love of God for sinners. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. That is a righteousness that is received and a righteousness that is practiced. And today, what we find before us in this next beatitude is a disposition which results from everything that has gone before. There is, there's some movement here. It's, it, these are not randomly strung together. But what we come to today is a disposition which results from everything that we've considered before that Jesus has said. And as we do, we come to arguably and understandably maybe the most misunderstood of all. 
perhaps. The, the reality is that we will never grasp what this beatitude is about. We will never grasp mercy unless we first grasp misery. In fact, mercy and misery belong together. In a fallen world in which we live, there are traces of misery everywhere. Now, you might not have thought about that. You might not have awakened this morning and, and dressed and made yourself here, your way here thinking how miserable this world is or how miserable I am. But we've all had from time to time a pretty miserable day, right? <laughs> I mean, we even talk about it that way. How was your day? Oh, it's miserable. Well, what happened? Traffic. Uh, start there. Traffic. Um, I was late to the, my appointment. That made it worse. Uh, those are first world uh, miseries, by the way. Uh, there's a scale that we ought to consider. Because you ask uh, some people in other parts of the world, in churches that have gathered this morning about misery, and they will tell you the story about the child that died from drinking unclean water. It's relative, so to speak, but there are pockets of that misery in our lives and there are pockets of even third world misery in Williamson County. And while we may not know all their names, we've begun to recognize some of their faces uh, just from our drives around town. So we're going to get at this, uh, this beatitude by asking three questions. First, what is it to be merciful? Second, why is that important? And third, how do we get there? What is it to be merciful? Why is it important? And how do we get there? So merciful. Uh, think mercy full. Okay, start there. Merciful, what does it mean? It means mercy full, full of mercy. So what's mercy? Well, the first time I ever, that word ever meant anything to me was as an eight-year-old learning to play baseball and learning that if one team got ahead of another team before the end of the game by 10 or more runs, the game was over. It was merciful. <laughs> I, it was merciful to the team and maybe the parents on both teams. To mercy was to recognize the circumstance and to do something. And in this case, not to continue scoring runs. But that's not the best way to understand mercy. You see, mercy starts with compassion for people in need. That's where it starts. It's a disposition that starts with compassion for people in need, but it doesn't end there. <laughs> it's one thing to have compassion. It's a good thing to have compassion. But mercy goes the next step. That mercy starts with compassion for people in need, but it leads to a response to that need. It's, it's moving somewhere. Uh, 
one of the books that uh, your deacons use in preparation for their office of serving as deacons defines it this way, that mercy is meeting felt needs through deeds. That's mercy. Well, maybe a distinction helps because no argument so far, I presume. Distinction, uh, this distinction will help. There's a couple of words that are often found together, grace and mercy. We, we talk about that. We read it in the scriptures, grace and mercy. So what's the difference? What's the overlap? Uh, one writer says, grace is a loving response when love is undeserved. That's grace. It's a loving response when love is undeserved. Mercy is a loving response prompted by misery and helplessness of the one on whom love is showered. The first, grace, love is undeserved. The second is prompted by the misery and the helplessness of the one upon whom love is showered. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, grace is for men in their sins, mercy is for men in their misery. That's helpful for me and perhaps you. Well, another uh, distinction, Thomas Watson helps us here. What's the difference between mercy and love? What's the overlap? He puts it this way, love acts more out of affection, mercy out of a principle of conscience. Love gives its heart to another, mercy lends its help. Can you hear the difference? The second one, mercy is always moving somewhere, responding to and prompted by what, what they have detected and, and discerned and observed, the, the brokenness or the misery. Mercy is extended to the souls of the person who receives mercy. It's the image of God. It's moving toward the soul of that person. But it also is extended to the needs give you an example. Well, I'll give you the example Jesus gave. Here's the example that Jesus gave, that parable of the good Samaritan. You remember how that parable ends? Who was the one who was the neighbor? And the answer, the one who showed mercy. The parable of the good Samaritan is a picture of mercy for us. But there's a supreme example it's not only the, the example that Jesus gave, it's the example that Jesus was and is, where in the incarnation, he saw our suffering and moved toward our misery and moved toward the brokenness of our own lives. That's why John the Baptist's father said of him, the little boy born in his arms, he says, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Uh, Julian was the emperor of Rome. In 381, Julian is watching what's going on in the culture and the brokenness and the misery around him. And he's observing uh, these new followers of Christ that he refers to as impious Galileans. <laughs> and he's complaining. His complaint grows out of what he observes. He says it's disgraceful while these impious Galileans support their own poor and ours as well 
while all people see that our people lack aid from us. You hear what he's saying? Those followers of Christ, they, they've seen the misery and the brokenness in the world, the, 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 the need that they've responded to. They're doing it and we're not. And what they are doing is they are doing mercy because they have a reason to do mercy. We'll get to that in a moment. During the plagues later on, they were, they were offering financial aid and help to all throughout the city. Don Ward is a friend of mine. Uh, Don Ward and I uh, went to seminary together. And after a few years, actually we landed in the same community in Charlottesville, Virginia. I in one church and Don in another. And a couple of years ago, Don began to have some other thoughts about what it was that he was to do with his life. And it was, I would argue, arguably suggest that, that the movement in his life was because of a tug of mercy on his heart. And so he is packed up, and he still lives in Charlottesville, but he travels. And he was recently in Malawi, serving with a ministry that equips and trains leaders. And Don wrote this on the heels of his most recent trip to Malawi. As sometimes as the case when I'm visiting Malawi, my heart was broken again in the face of the poverty of many. I cannot unsee what I've seen. I stood for, before a broken down house of a poor fellow pastor. I saw the dirt floor of his church building upon which he sleeps with his wife. I saw the borrow pit from which his village gets water. I interviewed a village woman who told me about this water and the sickness which too often accompanies drinking this water. And then Don writes, Lord, what do you want? I'm all in. Lord, what do you want? I'm all in. Uh, when I read those words, I was left uh, to ask how close to all in am I? How close to all in are we when it comes to this thing called mercy? Which re really leads to the second question before us today I, I want to pose, and that is, why is this important? Why is responding to the misery and the brokenness in the world, but in our own midst, important? Well, there's some typical Western objections. Tim Keller uh, tosses these out in that book that your deacons read, and that's this. Here are some of them. Let's be reasonable. We know we are to help out the unfortunate, but just how far do we have to go? I mean, how far, really? Uh, you don't mean we should pour ourselves out for anyone. Fam my family needs are great. Doesn't charity begin at home? You don't mean every Christian must get deeply involved with hurting and needy people. I'm not very good in that kind of work. It's just not my gift. I have a busy schedule. I'm extremely active in my church. Isn't this sort of thing the government's job anyway? Aren't many of the poor simply irresponsible? 
Well, they're actually um, very straightforward answers to each of those objections. But I want to add a note to that, and that is this. It's not that we can never say no. Brian Fickert is the professor of economics and community development at Covenant College, and in a very important book that he has authored entitled When Helping Hurts, suggests that there is a time, there are places where we have to be full of discretion about what is actually helpful. And there's no way to draw an exact line where mercy should end. But I love this expression that I think belongs in the midst of this discussion, and that is this. We need to let mercy limit mercy. Mercy never goes away. Mercy never ends. The question is, what is merciful? And what we learn from all that the scriptures have to say about this topic is that no is not our normal response. We have to remember God's yes. And, and the more we understand mercy and the more we taste and experience mercy that we have received, we become those people that delight to say yes. I've used this uh, illustration uh, a couple times in different settings, but, but it wasn't long ago that, <clears throat> that I was urged to think about those people that we meet at intersections. You know, the people that have a sign often and a need that is apparent and a remedy that is not there. Um, and it was when a friend suggested, why don't, you, why don't you buy some of those little gift cards for a meal at a local fast food place and just have those with you. And you know what's happened when I do that when once a month now for most months, buying a few of those, having a few on hand is I've learned that no is not my normal posture any longer. But there's a delight in saying yes. And we learn that together. We learn what it is to recognize misery and, and move toward it with mercy. There's three reasons that this is important. I want to give you these three. The first is this. We glorify God by living lives that reflect his mercy. It's God's character. The New Testament refers to, to God as rich in mercy. The Old Testament, the Lord is good to all, all his, and his mercy is over all he has made. Not to mention the passages we've already noted today in our service, that mercy and mercifulness is, is at, the, at the center of who our God is. We glorify God by living lives that reflect his mercy. And we step into it. David Jones, uh, author of a book on Christian ethics, says the full revelation of God's mercy brings with it the full responsibility. You hear that word? The full responsibility to practice mercy, to glorify God by living lives that reflect his mercy. That's why it's important. We glorify God by living lives that reflect his mercy. The note is sounded here in this in this beatitude, it reverberates in the Lord's Prayer, which we pray every Sunday. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
It forms the climax of Jesus' exposition of love and the Sermon on the Plain. That's the parallel version of what we are doing here with the Sermon on the Mount. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And then the parable of Good Samaritan drives it home. By mercy, by mercifulness, we resemble God who is a God of mercy. That's what Luke says in 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So that's the first reason. We glorify God. We echo Him. We, we cast His shadow into the brokenness of the world, His light, actually. But we glorify God by living lives that reflect His mercy. The second is this, that mercy expressed is so central to the Christian life that is arguably an essential mark of being a Christian. That's the argument Keller makes in his book. After reading and thinking about these words from 1 John 3, hear these words one more time. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then Keller writes, Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not an option or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds is an inevitable sign of true faith. And I might add, as he does in different ways, it's not something that we delegate. It's not something that we hand to our deacons and say, that's your job. No, actually their role is to coordinate and to lead, to identify, and for us together to move toward the misery that exists in our midst and in Williamson County and throughout the world. So the first reason is we glorify God by living lives that reflect his glory. Second, mercy expressed as an essential mark of being a Christian, but third and maybe most important of all in my own life is that mercy expressed roots us in our own continuous need for mercy. Mercy expressed roots us in our own continuous need for mercy. You know, that mercy that, that defines God is a mercy that makes us. It defines God and it makes us. It flows from him toward us. It runs to us. And the mercy that we need isn't a once, on a once upon a time kind of need. I mean, isn't it right every week that we confess our sin? What we're asking for is grace and mercy. We can clothe ourselves and most of us can feed ourselves, but the misery that marks our lives is deeper. It, it's, it's the twistedness inside of us. It's the lack of love for God, the lack of love for one another that, that it shows itself. And that makes it an ongoing need. And every time we express mercy, it roots us in our own need. And every time I do hand out one of those cards, 
I'm reminded of my own need for another kind of mercy, a deeper mercy, a mercy for those who are poor in spirit, for those who mourn over our sin, for those who thirst for a righteousness that we have not yet practiced well. And so we need mercy. That's why it's important. So how do we get there? That's really what we need to know, right? How do we get there? I said this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood of all the Beatitudes, and and when you look at it, you can see why. It appears to say that in order to receive mercy, I must earn it by showing mercy to others. That's one way to understand the words, but that's a way to misunderstand the message. Mercy is not a qualifier like something that we earn. There's two parallel statements, one I've already mentioned, that seem to add weight to that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We say that every week. If I forgive my debtors, you forgive me. That sounds like what's going on here. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 is another indication that we could take it in that direction where the cruel servant in debt is asked by a master for payment and the master had mercy and forgave the debt. Then the servant demanded payment from the one who owed him a trivial amount. And then he was thrown into prison. Likewise, our heavenly father, it says, if you, if you from your hearts forgive not, not everyone his brother their trespasses. Those who faithfully follow God and esteem his word can expect his blessing. But extending mercy is not a condition to get mercy. We would have to call it something else. (laughs) If you could earn it, it would not be mercy. (laughs) Does that make sense? It would have to be something else. If we were, by the way, if we were judged strictly on those terms, it's very certain that none of us would ever be forgiven. Just file that one away. (laughs) Or ever see heaven. Secondly, we would need to cancel the whole doctrine of grace from the New Testament. Because you see, it was while we were sinners that we were reconciled to God. So it can't be earned. So how do we get there? How do we get that? Well, I want to mention four ways. It starts with this. Examine your heart. Examine your heart toward those with real need. Did you identify with any of those objections or different ways of stating those objections I mentioned earlier? The reality, this starts with being honest. Being honest with where you are. Don Carson asked some very hard questions that I find hard but helpful. Am I merciful or contemptuous? To the wretched? Am I gentle or hard nosed toward the downtrodden? Am I helpful or callous toward the backslidden? Am I compassionate or impatient with the fallen? It starts by examining our own heart toward those who are in need honestly to say, That's who I am, that's where I am. It starts there. And then second, confess any and every failure to be merciful toward the misery of others. 
Ian Duguid writing on this passage says, if we start to go out into the world and attempt to show mercy, real mercy, not just helping friends and family who deserve it, then we will come rapidly face to face with our own self-centeredness and hard-heartedness and indifference. So we confess that. We confess the reality of that. We need to recognize how much like the unmerciful servant we really are. That it's easy to receive forgiveness, but it's harder to grant even a little. It's easier to receive mercy than to display it. Third, and this is where the change occurs. When we ponder the depths and the riches of God's mercy toward us. Ponder the depths and the riches of God's mercy toward us. The person who has recognized his own helplessness is what? Grateful for whatever mercy he or she has seen and learns to be merciful toward others. We can only be truly merciful. Understanding the true nature of sin and yet extending love and forgiveness without limit when we have received God's mercy ourselves. Those who are merciful know better than anyone else their own need for mercy. That's, that's where the change occurs. That's where we move from being callous or indifferent or self-hard-hearted toward merciful, and that is recognizing our own need for mercy, a mercy that never ends and a need that never is extinguished. And then finally, number four, start in the shallow end. Maybe it's those gift cards. They don't cost that much. Maybe it's, it's saying yes the next time Laura Coughlin helps us identify some needs at GraceWorks, which we have talked about in recent weeks. Maybe it's jumping in with those who have been formed and are serving and leading our church with the Barnabas team. See Todd Russell about that. Maybe it's simply recognizing that there are people here today who have some trace of misery in their own life. It's not dirty water, but other needs, other traces of the fall in this, of this world. And what does it look like to move toward one another? We can move toward one another because one has moved toward us. I mentioned earlier Jesus, the supreme example. But he's not merely the example. He is the way. He is the, he is the way to this. He is the, he is the life to this. He is the lifeblood for this. It is our union with Christ. It is being identified with him and united to him by faith that leads us down this path. Because he, the writer of Hebrews says, is a merciful and faithful high priest. 
When you ask yourself those hard questions, and as, as I do myself, where do you find yourself? I'm not as merciful as I think I'm called to be. Now, what do you do with that? You run. You run not to the brokenness of this world. You run to the one who entered the brokenness of this world, to your faithful high priest. We sang it earlier, wonderful, merciful Savior. Here in our weakness you find us falling before your throne. We are weak when it comes to mercy. <laughs> it's not our instinct. It's, it's not our personalities. It's not our, our default. Our default is inward. It's, it's protection. It's, it's safety. But we belong to one who entered the brokenness of the world at what cost? His own life. And your, your merciful, faithful high priest is the one who beckons you today to a throne of grace where you also find mercy. Mercies that are ever flowing for people who are weak, for people who are not yet what we will one day be, but we belong to one who has granted to us grace and mercy. Your father's expression the expression on his face is not a frown. It is delight because he's merciful. And what that does in us is it creates a disposition that no is not our normal, but that we delight to say yes to the one who constantly says yes to our need. Christ our Lord. Father, would you take what is true from these words? Would you drive them into, our, into the center of who we are? Would we taste and see the mercy that, is, that you extend to us and make us more and more like Christ, the one who is your merciful And our great high priest, in his name we pray. Amen.